Hi, my name is Alan. I'm a business designer and welcome to the Beyond Users podcast, where we learn about business to become better designers who not only solve user challenges, but also achieve business goals. So in this episode, I talked with Joel Khalifa, who is a senior product designer at GitHub. He recently wrote a very interesting and popular blog post called Subverted Design, which I highly recommend. And in this um, article, he describes what happens if designers forget that their first responsibility is still the user. On Beyond Users, we have, and we will also in the future, talk a lot about the business knowledge that designers need, because this is still very necessary for our community. But I want to point out that again that users are still designers' first priority. So having said that, um, in this episode with Joe, Uh, we spoke about the examples of subverted design. Uh, then we talk about why putting users first is designer's role, even if other departments and your coworkers want you to become more business focused. And what specifically designers should know about business. Just one more thing before diving into the episode. If you want to learn more about business, um, you can visit my website, beyondusers.com, and there you can take a five-day email course which I put together. It's called Mini MBA for Designers. And in these emails, I present five business concepts that are relevant for designers and that I've also used in my design process. So that's available on beyondusers.com. So now, without further ado, here is a conversation with Joel Khalifa. So, Joe, uh, you said that you had many different titles over your career. Like uh, you've been a web designer, an interaction designer, a UX slash UI designer, and also a full stack designer. Uh, so, first of all, how do you introduce yourself today? Uh, I introduce myself as product as a product designer now. You're at GitHub, right? Yeah, I, I do a bit of everything, honestly. Um, as as many designers at startups do. So I I do everything from like, you know, still the low level kind of UI work, uh, as well as the coding mm-hmm. work for implementation, um, but also flows, information architecture, and then high level and kind of long term product strategy. Got it. Hey, how would you, talking about all these titles, right, that you went through, if we kind of take a moment and reflect upon that, like uh, having, I don't know how many, six or seven different titles in your career, What do you think it tells us about our industry and the role that you had? I think it's fairly young. Um, that's that's the main thing. So with with software engineers, I think they've kind of had like either, you know, developer or engineer for the past, I don't know, 20 years. Um, for us, we're still we're still figuring stuff out and our roles keep changing all the time because we we don't have a very mature practice yet. Um, and so that's where the, the title changes come, come from. Um, also I think, I think, yeah, I think the, the changes come from different sectors, uh, or, or sections of the industry thinking about the scope of design in different ways. So a UX designer comes from this idea of, okay, UX is one thing and UI is another thing. Um, mm-hmm. And we want to specialize in this one field uh, or one area of focus. 
Um, so we'll call that UX, which is, you know, as, as a term, it's kind of super vague and like, what is the experience? But it tells something about the priorities of whoever, um, whoever holds that title as well as whoever is hiring for that title. Um, product design, I think, was popularized by, by Facebook um, when they... Uh, when basically they said, hey, like a uh, uh, designer has to understand a lot of different things. They need to work on strategy. Um, they need to understand both like how to implement things and how to think about things. Um, and the like UX UI designer didn't really fit into that for them. And so we stole essentially like the industrial designer title, uh, which mm. which fits way more with what we do because industrial designers do have that larger scope of context that they need to have at any given time, right? They need to think about ergonomics and materials and sustainability and like um, all of these other things that make the entire product. They don't just sketch something on a, on a notepad. And what would you say then the full stack designer means? What was, what's the story here? <laughs> so that's, it's actually um, <laughs> kind of a funny story. I, I kind of, coined that um, okay <laughs> so so no one no one used it um before me and i i actually looked into this and tried to use like the internet archives to find any kind of any kind of use before my first portfolio went viral um and and it just wasn't there and then i used it and now the entire industry is using it uh in different cool. places which yeah, in, in a sense, it's like okay, that's super cool. In another sense, I like I never intended for this title to be like a um, far-reaching thing, and I'm not super happy about it becoming that. Um, Why not? It's it's also like super vague. It just means to me. I was looking for a way to sell myself as a designer, to frame myself and my skill set in a way that's valuable. Um, and a way that's kind of really easy to understand. And so my main skill set at this point was like, okay, I can make things like very, you know, very beautiful, which is the, you could see that as front end, right? The thing that the user sees and, and understands right away. I'm, you know, very good at doing flows, um, which is kind of the maybe kind of middle end part. And then I'm also like um, a technical designer, right? So I didn't want to say designer who codes or whatever. I wanted to frame mm. it as um, something that would be more valuable to an employer. So I landed on full stack designer after like a bunch of iteration. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought it was like, it was clever and cute and I put it out there and uh, and then I just started seeing it everywhere. <laughs> That's super interesting, like especially the point when you're talking about selling yourself as a designer. I think this is where uh, all these different titles kind of come into place. And I'm just wondering, like with all of your experience, like if you are a designer that's still kind of trying to figure out, all the, like if he's looking for a new job, she's looking for a new job, how would you figure out which title to put on your portfolio? Maybe first question, like, does it even matter what kind of title you put? And the second, like, how would you figure out which one to use when? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I think, so I think a job search process um, is is really like just a big design project, like a personal design project. And so you have, 
a like goals, right? And those are the things that are most important to figure out. Um, the title is going to be the solution um, to the problem that you have. And the problem you have might be any given number of things, right? I might be interested in working for a company like Google, where maybe having like interaction designer or UX designer or something more focused might be better, right? Because it's a big company um, and there's more specialization there, right? And they're looking for more specialized mm-hmm. people. Um, if I'm looking f- to join a startup um, where I, I'm going to have to wear like a whole bunch of hats and the kind of contemporary industry vision is we're hiring product designers, then I would want to um, kind of align with that. Um, so it's the title, like each title has a lot of, um, not baggage, but like a lot of associations to it now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you need to understand what those associations are uh, and what's going to come across as most uh, valuable to, to a given employer uh, and the employer that you want. Um mm-hmm. And yeah, and then just choose that. So it's hard to give like a universal answer. Um, like at Airbnb, they call their uh, their product designers experience designers. Because mm-hmm. uh, they're like, we're not just designing the product. They might do some service. Yeah. Too, and okay, we're also designing like how it feels to be in an Airbnb. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that makes sense too. So there's also like which titles work for the specific company. Uh, and not mm-hmm. just like the specific swath of industry. Let's talk about your example. Like you recently joined GitHub, right? Let's maybe, maybe you can tell your story, how you went about finding the next employer and like what was your process in in respect to all these titles and finding the right company and the whole, the whole shebang. Sure. Um it was It was interesting. So first, like searching for a job when you currently have a job, is not quite as straightforward. Um, <laughs> so there's, you have to kind of either use your, <laughs> you have to like use your, um, use your friends and people who will, will kind of be quiet about it um, to kind of sniff around for possible opportunities and just look at the opportunities out there on like job sites. Um, I, <laughs> I know this doesn't answer the question, but it's just kind of funny. Like at some point I had a founder friend send out an email to the entire Y Combinator list of like, mm-hmm. hey, I was looking for a job. Like, is anyone interested? And literally the next day, one of my designers came up to me and was like, hey, are you leaving? Because <laughs> <laughs> like, someone told me you're leaving. Um, uh. <laughs> anyway, like the, the way I kind of went about it was um, I have a huge spreadsheet with all of the opportunities I found that were kind of interesting to me. Um, some of them were for like a director of product design position, so more leadership, which which aligned with what I was doing at DigitalOcean. Um, some of them were more like IC, like product designer, uh, hands-on work uh, at like a various, various sizes of companies in various industries. And so what I ended up doing was putting together a very long spreadsheet with like different things that I cared about and then weighted each one based on how much I cared about it and then scored each one for every company. Um, Mm. So it was, 
it was kind of a very in-depth process for me for figuring out not just, you know, how do I get a job, but also what do I want? Um, mm-hmm. And GitHub kind of most aligned with the things that I was interested in doing. Could you give me a few examples of the criteria you had for when, when you were looking for the companies? Yeah, you know what? I can just open it up. So off the top of my head, there were some things I really cared about. Um, so I cared about the team being really great and having a team that could help grow me, um, which, you know, isn't isn't something super obvious um, to a lot of people, uh, especially people kind of further along with their careers. Um, mm-hmm. But for me, it was just like, I, I absolutely need this. I can't I can't do without this, um, without the ability to grow. Let me let me see if I can find it. Yeah, go ahead. That's great. Go ahead and tell us what's inside the, yeah. the spreadsheet. Maybe while while you're opening, just what does a good team mean? I know like we all have this image of a good team, but like how would you how did you go about really figuring out if it's a good team for you or not? That's yeah, that's a great question. So first um first I really care about admiring everyone on the team. So I I don't want to work with someone who I'm like, just kind of whatever about, you know, okay, I can work with you. You're okay. Um, I want to work with people who challenge me and who I look at and say, okay, I want to be more like them in various ways. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, they're really good communicators or, oh, like they're, you know, they're amazing at figuring out systems or they just always ask the right questions or they're good listeners or, or whatever. Um, Mm. but I, I, I love to work at teams where I, I feel like I'm the idiot in the room basically. (laughs) Um, and that happens a lot at GitHub and it's, it's just an amazing stressful, but like amazing feeling. Um, but that's super interesting because I think like when you start your career, like you're almost looking for maybe even unconsciously, you're looking for this validation and then you want to have the team where you can kind of excel and show what you can do. And then maybe later through time, you're looking the opposite. Like you want to be challenged even more because this, this, this is really what makes you learn and grow. Yeah. What is that called? Like Dunning-Kruger or whatever. Um, there's like the, the fallacy or not the fallacy, but like you have an inaccurate view of how much you know when you're starting off. Yeah. And like yeah. the more you learn, you're like, oh, you know, I don't actually know anything. Um, I, I should probably join somewhere that's going to teach me stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I have the spreadsheet open. Um, cool. So the number one thing, the only thing that I gave like a 10 in weight is quality of people. And that's kind of what I was getting into before. That also includes not just, oh, they're really good at their job, but also their values align with mine. So they care about um, diversity, they're kind people, um, they care about growth, things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. Not necessarily, hey, like these are people I'd like to um, go out and have a beer with or whatever, but people who we kind of get each other. Mm. Um. Also very important is, you know, work-life balance. Um, the That uh, ability to be flexible in hours. Um, 
mm-hmm. the ease of actually shipping things. So I wanted to work somewhere where I could work on something and know that politics or you know bad pro- project management wouldn't get in the way of actually getting stuff out to users. Mm-hmm. Um, so I weighted things based on that. Um, so having being attached to a good product manager was important. Um, confidence in the company's future, also important. Uh, the specific thing that I'd be working on resonating with me. Um, brand recognition was there. So some stuff in terms of like, how is this going to be helpful for my future? So mm-hmm. what's the brand recognition? What's my title? Uh, is there a path to leadership? Things like that. Mm. It's a very nice list. You should think about publishing it if you haven't done it yet. Uh, that's a good idea. Yeah, you know, I probably will. And if you do, then let me know and then I can put it in the show notes too. I think a lot of people might uh, could be interested in this and could could use it. But one of the things I wanted to ask you about this specific criteria that you have is uh, how would you go? How did you actually go about finding the data on this stuff? For example, you talked about the work-life balance and about shipping things. This is this isn't the stuff that you can just find online, uh, or is it? Like, how did you get those um, information or, and data points? Yeah, no, that's that's an awesome question. So I think a really important thing is building this list of things you care about before you actually start the job search, um, and then as you're as you're researching things, you can start filling these in, right? So stuff like brand recognition, you can get pretty fast. Um, Stuff like flexibility in hours or ease ease to ship things, those can translate into uh, questions that you ask during your phone screens, during your interviews. Um, Because an interview is kind of like not many people or like uh, not everyone really gets this, but an interview isn't just them interviewing you. It's also you figuring mm-hmm. out whether the company is a really good fit for you. Yeah. Um, and then you just don't stop asking questions until everything's filled out and you feel confident that it's filled out right. Got it. That's a super nice process. Really nice. Thank you. Yeah, I will. I will definitely open source this. Do it. I think a lot of people might might use it. Look, um, let's make a segue to the next topic. Um, actually, you published a really interesting and a popular post recently. So anyone listening who haven't read Joel's article called uh, Subverted Design, you should definitely read it. Um, the main idea is that as design has become more senior, you notice that they start caring more about business. Actually, they even start caring too much about business. So their sh- like priorities shift. So... <clears throat> Uh, maybe let's talk about your experience first. Like, could you tell us like, how was it for you when you started your career in terms of these priorities? And then when did you notice things start shifting and then starting being fishy? Yeah. Um, so early on, didn't have any business contacts. Um, and the kind of the way that my role was framed very early on, like I started as a visual designer uh, moved on to be kind of more of a UX designer. I I didn't feel any responsibility for the business, um, which is just how both my role was framed and also kind of the narrative within our industry. Um, we always talked about like putting the user first, making things user friendly. Um, and there wasn't as much conversation around like, how do we make ourselves valuable to the business? 
Mm-hmm. Um, and we weren't like that valuable to the business, right? When I started out, we like, or, or our perceived value was fairly low. Um, we were just like, okay, just slap some design on it, make it okay. Um, <laughs> and then interesting things happened like, oh, Airbnb became super successful because of design. You know, Apple became mm-hmm. super successful because of design. Um, and the industry at large started figuring out like, oh, you know, there maybe there's something to design. Maybe it can help us as businesses. Um, so this probably happened like, I don't know, 2009, 10, like after the iPhone was released. Um, or, or maybe, maybe even a bit earlier than that. Um, but you started seeing a shift of like kind of it, it going out to other businesses and other businesses figuring out, Hey, Steve jobs is successful (laughs) or whatever. Yeah. Um, maybe I can do something with design as well, or maybe designers are kind of a silver bullet for me. Um, and so we started getting treated uh, in in a way better fashion, right? We started getting this, you know, quote unquote, seat at the table, um, or at least like, you know, logistically like a higher salary, um, mm-hmm. and started being treated as more important. Started aligning more as a as a field as a craft with software engineering. Um, but the the expectations from us. And, and the reason for us kind of gaining this stature was that we would help the business. The design would kind of do this magic thing and, and push the business forward. Mm-hmm. Um, which I don't think in itself is like a bad thing. Um, but it's it's kind of a feedback loop. And just through all of these, just through the reason that we became important, I think we started thinking about design slightly differently. Um, and this, let's put the user first, let's be like that obnoxious designer that fights, fights to the teeth, right. Against, um, Mm -hmm. against things that might be more user hostile, that kind of disappeared a bit. Um, not, not in a black and white way of like, oh, designers are now, um, totally 100% complicit with, uh, with businesses and, do not care about users at all anymore. It's more like a subtle shift um, that happened over time. Um, and I, I found myself also judging myself based on that kind of stuff. Like, is the product successful? What is adoption like? Um, what's what's kind of the revenue like? Um, so it wasn't really myself noticing it as it happened, but mostly noticing that it happened um, in hindsight, um, the things I started noticing were more the kind of conversations I saw happening in the industry. So more like, Hey, you know what? Designers shouldn't really learn to code as much as they should learn, um, how to create business value. Mm -hmm. And that, when I heard that the first time, that rung so true to me um, mm-hmm. because it's in our industry, it's the most valuable skill set. It's the most valuable skill set um, and has been for, for a while now because it, 
kind of sets you apart from a lot of other designers and sets you to get the kind of roles that you want. So uh, what is your perspective on that today? Why should designers learn about business? Should they? Um, so I think there's an interesting parallel between this idea of designers learning to code and learning about business. Um, what a lot of people say is like a designer doesn't necessarily have to learn how to implement production code, um, but learning the context uh, of how products are actually built is really important. Like understanding what technically needs to happen is going to help you do your job um, because it lets you communicate with engineers in a better way. Uh, it helps you make decisions that aren't totally impossible um, and kind of saves on time. Um, and so I'm not saying, uh, and I didn't mean to say with subverted design, that designers shouldn't learn about business. Um, because it provides a lot of similar context. It's like you you understand how your product affects the place that you're working for, right? And various different teams within that place um, and kind of the future of your company. And so I think that is really useful context as well and can result in better decisions across the board um, and is going to make you a better designer knowing that stuff. So I'm not saying people shouldn't know that stuff. But like with code, the, you shouldn't design for technical implementation, right? So just because you understand that a framework like Rails uh, might not do something very gracefully on the back end doesn't mean that you should uh, create like lists, lists and view pages or something that fits with Rails. You might want to create the thing that is most right for your users and then figure out how to create it on the back end. And so in the same way, I think designers should understand business context, but they shouldn't necessarily design for that uh, business context and to, to maximize for that. Um, they should just use it as kind of like you said, as a toolkit um, to making better decisions uh, and more thoughtful decisions. Okay, cool. So um, I asked you about your own experience with regards to your article, but let's go maybe and just talk about its premise in its entirety. The premise of the article started with, okay, us as an industry, just technology, um, sees itself as inherently virtuous, right? We are changing the world. We are creating a, mm. a net positive. And more and more, I think we're beginning, beginning to realize that that's not really axiomatic, right? It's not a, an objective truth. Uh, and there's a lot of stuff that tech does in various places that, you know, hurts housing markets, hurts the way people think, um, hurts engagement with, with life or even like creates a, avenues for abuse. Like there's a lot of stuff that tech does um, that's kind of a net negative, um, and a lot of the other roles within technology are judged directly based on those numbers, based on retention, based on, um, sorry, not just retention, mostly based on like, uh, adoption and conversion, um, and then revenue streams. Designers 
have never been very formally judged based on these um based on these metrics we've we've increasingly needed to conform to them and needed to think about them but we still have like an immense privilege in the fact that it, privilege and i guess kind of a, a handicap in the in the sense that we don't really know how to measure design we're not very good at it as an industry mm-hmm. um and so when i see our role where we have that opportunity um to really push the user story um and and push the user's um experience as a priority we're doing that less and less because these other roles are incentivized not to do that as much um i'm not saying they don't i'm saying the incentives are we will tie your bonus up to how your product performs not in the sense of customer happiness but in the sense of the hard numbers like how much revenue is it bringing in how does it affect the bottom line Mm-hmm. So when you have all of these different roles that are incentivized to care more about the business and designers are veering closer to caring more about the business, then that's what's going... Those are the kind of products that are going to start um, being released. The ones that are framed around business needs rather than user needs. And you'll see these in like subtle ways. Um, yeah, could you give a few examples you do give a few examples, like I think LinkedIn and Facebook uh, in the article. Could you talk about these uh, for for a moment? Sure. Um, so so LinkedIn is is kind of the classic, right? LinkedIn is basically the foundation of the product is dark patterns. Um, I don't know why. I see like a lot of inherent value in LinkedIn, but I guess the... <laughs> I guess they're not seeing the kind of numbers they want to see. And I've always seen over the years then LinkedIn trying to push me into doing things that I don't want to do by tricking me. Mm. Um, I gave another... So the example I gave with LinkedIn is them showing... Um, they have the the page that shows you kind of, hey, here's who you might want to add to your network. Here are some friends you know, etc. Um and then they intersperse in that here are a few of your friends that aren't on LinkedIn and the link looks exactly the same. And so instead of adding them to your network, you're going to be inviting them to join yeah. LinkedIn. Um, so that's one of the, the grosser kind of more obvious examples. Um, but when I talk about design being subverted, I mean the more subtle ones that maybe you don't even notice that you're doing. And so... The other example I gave was first Facebook. When you try and deactivate your account, what they do is show you um, a, <laughs> yeah, like a bunch of your friends' photos. And over each, each photo, they say, Sarah will miss you. Freddie will miss you. David will miss you. And they say, your uh, number of friends, right? Your, thousand friends or whatever will no longer be able to get in touch with you, which is like another layer on top of that. Yeah. yeah. So the thing is about this page is it's not easy to get to this page, right? Mm -hmm. When a user arrives on this page, they have very clearly 
articulated and confirmed their um, their intent. Like they want to deactivate their account. Um, and a, a thing Facebook can do is say like, hey, are you sure? They can ask, um, why do you want to deactivate your account to get future data for how to change the product and make less people churn? But instead, what they've chosen to do is create this, this emotional friction in order mm-hmm. to stop people from deactivating their account. And, and I see that as like a prime example of this because you can, you can rationalize that, right? You can say, hey, but maybe people are forgetting how valuable Facebook is and we should just remind them a bit. And maybe when they see that they won't be able to contact George in the future, um, they might decide that it's in their best interest not to deactivate. Um, no, I I kind of see that like that like dangling a cigarette in front of someone who just decided to quit. They're just like, hey, like, are you sure you want to quit? You won't be able to smoke this anymore, <laughs> and and you like that. <laughs> um, yeah, good. yeah. <laughs> so so. Good point. So it's just like small decisions that I think as you're making them, they feel like they're okay. But when you think about them a bit closer, um, they're they're clearly designed with business goals in mind, with reducing churn. Um, another example was Airbnb. When you're looking for a booking at any given time, they say, hey, there's only 14% of listings left on this date. Like we, we recommend yeah, that you yeah. book it right now. Booking does the same. Yeah. And I hate it. It's, it's funny. Cause like, again, that's, you can frame that as like, Hey, we're just telling you, like, we're giving you some more context for your situation. Right. Mm. You might want to do this. Um, you might want to buy now. Uh, and that's good for you. Cause if you try it later, you won't be able to, to do it, but they show that everywhere. Mm. You know, and I like I, I'm not convinced that it's it's real because this is the kind of stuff companies often do to encourage you to do the thing that they're interested in you doing versus the thing that's really good yeah. for you. Creating fake scarcity, um, fake deadlines <clears throat> for products and so on. Exactly right, like wait, like wait lists. You know, wait lists are great for mm. marketing, but not not the best thing for users, maybe. Mm. But let's say that you find yourself in a situation where someone in your team come up, comes up with this rationale that you should do uh, this kind of design. How would you fight against it? I would basically say the same things that I've said before, um, right here um, in this interview. Basically that, hey, this is like mm. user hostile. We are showing this in a place that's already... Um, already has very clear intent and the a good product removes friction between the things uh, you're trying to do and actually getting them done. So I would put all that forward. Um, I would put it forward that this feels like emotional blackmail um, when Facebook like mm. reminds you of your friends. Um, and I'd fight for it. You know, and and I'm not saying yeah. the designer, like I, 
it's easy to talk about this stuff from the side. And I added all of these different uh, companies because I wanted to make it clear that this wasn't like the Facebook problem. It's an industry-wide problem. Um, currently at GitHub, I find that design and and like our end users are treated with such kind of I don't know, like almost holy, not design uh, as like a designer, but like thinking about what is actually going to create good outcomes for our users is really important, not just to Mm -hmm. me, but to product managers, to engineers, to leadership. Um, So I've, I've chosen maybe, maybe the easy path, which is just not working (laughs) at a company that values business goals over design goals. I wanted to say that one of the secret weapons of design is actually talking from the user perspective, right? And if you don't do that, then you are almost becoming a commodity in the company because you are just rationalizing your ideas the same way everybody else is. But if you do put the user first and then hint at the long-term business benefits uh, or short-term, but mostly it's also long-term, then you kind of have a, this unique perspective and this is the unique thing that you can bring to the table, right? Yeah, 100%. I, so there are like a lot of, again, as, as an industry, we're really, really bad at measuring ourselves and measuring our successes. Um, mm, yeah. But I think, I think so one way to combat this is to get better at that. So better at looking at data and working with data better at creating good cases and communicating them. I think as an, as an industry, we're already pretty good at that um, or getting better at that. Um, But really showing, Hey, it might not seem like it today and we might be giving up a short term win, but if we do this long term, it might hurt us. Um. One exactly. example of this is I, I worked on a flow when I was at DigitalOcean. We, um, this isn't like necessarily a user hostile thing, but this was a flow that was that felt bad to people to put them in like a, a fraud box, right? So when we thought people mm-hmm. were fraudulous, uh, fraudulent, we we stuck them in a flow when they were trying to sign up, and the flow wasn't super ideal and it didn't feel good and. What that resulted in is people who went through that flow, even if it was resolved within a day, had a lower net promoter score two years later. No Hmm. matter their experiences, like across the board, anyone who had touched this flow, there was a correlation with a lower net promoter score. Hey, Joel, I think we should really like start putting this type of cases, like uh, there should be like an open source website where designers could share this um, not anecdotes, but examples of this long-term effects and the metric, because then we can, even if in your company, you cannot show these things yet, you can show examples from other companies where, look, like this is, I cannot show you now because obviously it's it's not a short-term thing, but if you look at all these examples, then it's clear that this is maybe not the best thing to do. And it, it's a similar way to rationalizing uh, to the way, going back to what you said in the beginning, that design became so important because all these companies saw so Apple and you know, Airbnb and 
Facebook using design to achieve business goals, like using examples if you don't have the concrete metrics for your specific project is, is also a good way to combat, combat that. Yeah, no, that's a great idea. Um, we should definitely do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I will get in touch with you after the call and then we can see what we can do. But since we're here, like, do you have any other examples of this? Not that come to mind right now. Um, it's also, it's like harder to look at these things, right? We wouldn't have known that if we didn't specifically look at that flow and what it was doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. The correlation isn't obvious unless you actually like pick up really, really specific data and look at it and analyze it. Mm. So it might be happening all over the place, but we we won't know until we actually check. Speaking of metrics, uh, when you joined GitHub, like, did you have a chance to choose your own metrics, or, or um, what kind of like how is your performance measured? Yeah, um, yeah. Actually, we do um, quarterly goals, or actually like by half semi yearly goals every six months. Um, we we just went through this process and we set up the things that we the things that we care about, the things that we want to grow at, the things we want to um, leave our team with by the end of that time. Um, we're measured on those things, right? On completion of those projects on on hitting our growth. And then we're also measured on, um, how well we collaborate with the team, right? Which is, is not as quantitative as looking at a product. Uh, it's more just like making sure that, the team you're on is healthy and that the bar of designs that are coming through are, are up to the standard of the organization. Um, mm. So it's a, it's a variety of things, but mostly it's like more subjective than looking at a number and saying, is it under this or over uh, expectations? But if I understand correctly, it's a mixture of quantitative, like in this case, completion of a project and a qualitative kind of a, feedback from your coworkers. Yeah, exactly. There's we have like a different um different levels uh based on your seniority and each level has its own uh set of expectations from you in terms of the scope mm-hmm. you work at, in terms of how much you mentor uh, other uh people in your field, uh in terms of the you know the kind of stuff that you manage to get done. Um and so we're we're basically tested against those things, which are articulated in a leveling framework. What was interesting to me at IDEO, um, I joined as a fresh uh, business school graduate and uh, I was used to very quantitative environment. So when I joined IDEO and uh, performance reviews and the metrics were purely qualitative, it felt a bit weird. But after um, a few years, it felt like the people, like, even if you don't have those hard numbers, people know if you're performing or underperforming. Uh, I, it, it's different, obviously, in the consulting business than working on a product. But still, uh, I wasn't aware of how much the quant metrics also um, put boundaries around what you pay attention to. So having this mixture of quant and qual, I think, is a pretty smart way to do it. Yeah, it it definitely is, um, and it, it feels really good. 
I on on my team at DigitalOcean, I tried to do the same. I tried to judge them based on how they were doing on their teams, based on how they accepted feedback about that. Um, I would I would set up uh, biweekly meetings with their PMs and their engineering managers, uh, and then I'd also figure it out based on the goals they set for themselves versus goals that I am setting for them from above. Um, mm. And then it's just a matter of working with them to make sure those goals are the right goals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it becomes more about personal growth rather than, oh, this product that you made needs to be successful because I actually, you know, failures are, are a good thing. They teach you a lot. Yeah, Definitely. So as you know, like the purpose of this podcast is also to educate those designers who are totally on the user or art spectrum of, you remember when we talk about the spectrum of user being on one side and the business being on the other side. So I see, I still see a lot of designers being totally on the user side and forgetting about business completely, which is also not the way to do it. Um, we spoke a lot about being too much on the business today, but I wanted to ask you, how did you start getting some business education when you were um, moving towards the right side of the spectrum? Right. Um, mostly just listening. So, so mm-hmm. as, you, as you gain more experience at work, you start... Well, I've noticed that, at least for me, you know, I was a visual designer... At some point, visual design became easy and I stopped being interested in it and I got more interested in kind of the higher level stuff uh, for flows and information architecture and, you know, wireframing and and figuring out where this button should go instead of like how it looks. And that was more challenging and, and rewarding. And then I kind of figured a lot of that out and became, you know, fairly competent at it. And it became a bit boring too. And I started being more interested in like product strategy. And as these interests grow, the things you pay attention to kind of shift. Um, And I found myself uh, going to more strategy meetings, listening more when PMs talk about uh, unit pricing, um, talking to finance to figure out how things work, how different pricing models work, etc. And so I, I never just sat down and grabbed like an MBA book or whatever Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and like read it from cover to cover it's mostly like uh gained pieces of context over time mm-hmm. um so i'm probably not the best person to ask no but i think i think that's a great way to do it because one of the tools of design is actually empathy listening uh taking in a lot of information that's maybe uh, totally out of your uh, area of expertise but then digesting it and using this toolkit, this mindset, this this approach also towards your coworkers, right? Which you've done then is the way to learn uh, in a way. Yeah. Um, do you feel like there are any buckets of things that you learned? Like, um, I don't know, understanding business models, something like that. Were there any categories of business knowledge that you acquired? Sure. Yeah. So understanding business models for sure. Um having like building context for how changes in your product is going to affect the business is really important or building something that you building at least like a care towards that. Um, I think 
learning how to work with data is very important. So you can use mm -hmm. that for kind of anything. You can use it towards, let's see if this is going to uh, hit company goals. Um, but you can also use it to see, hey, let's see if this is going to hit user goals. Um, let's see if, mm. like, you can, data is kind of pure in itself and you can use it for anything. Um, Do you have any examples of how we've done that? Yeah, I mean, there's there's the basics, right? There's like, let's make sure that people complete tasks successfully and they don't come back for like seconds. Um, let's look at time to completion. Um, let's look at you know, their happiness is another thing that you can look at, right? So uh, surveys that measure satisfaction or uh, the perceived ease of use of your product or even net promoter score, um, which, you know, isn't perfect, but it's it's something. Uh, and it's more than we've had in the past. Um, you can, like, measure engagement. You can measure things that, like, aren't necessarily as... You know, because engagement, for instance, and adoption and conversion and retention, all these things, right? They can go, they can go on either side. Yeah. Um, so, so knowing how to look at them and knowing what you care about and, and being able to articulate your goals is, is super important, I think. Um, both, both for building good products and for articulating your decisions and being able to back them up. So, so there's those two things. There's, there's the data part. There's the understanding how, what the business needs um, in terms of generating revenue. Uh, and then there's also like a logistical aspect of understanding how decisions are made. Um, so who needs to okay this? What kind of politics are involved? Um, mm. What, what, what is, are the consequences of this? Because the more you work somewhere, the more you kind of learn to expect different kinds of consequences like oh this is going to affect technical support in this way um yeah. this is going to affect uh procurement in this other way because they're going to need to get whatever um and the larger and larger your lens is the more context you have and the better kind of decision you can make yeah definitely hey, joe i want to finish up with um two last short questions um, the first one is, what kind of advice would you give to a young designer who is just starting out? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I actually get, get it uh, quite a bit. I think the number one piece of feedback I can give is figure out what you want. Because un until you know that, until you have kind of a direction or a goal, then everything else that you're doing um, could be in the wrong direction, right? It could be a waste of time. I, I actually have a, a talk about this that I've been doing around the world um, called Full Stack Anxiety. And if you look that up, you'll probably, uh, yeah. you'll probably find it. Um, I'll put it in the show notes too. Sure. But it's just like, it's, it, it's not super complicated. It's just a framework of figuring out what to learn. So if you're starting out, you want to know, you want to aim towards the job that you want, right? And if you don't know what that is yet, that's where research comes in, right? Just look at what's out there, talk to whoever you need to talk to, industry leaders. Uh, people usually accept 
you know, emails or uh, questions about the industry. Um, like what I'm saying is usually people in the industry are pretty nice. And if you reach out to them, they'll try and help you. Yeah. Um, so, so do that, right? F- try and figure it out for yourself. What do you want? And then when you figure out what you want, you need to figure out what you need to get it. Um, so like, what is the criteria to actually, uh, land a job there? And what is your current status, right? Are you, do you think you're good at visual design? Like talk to 20 people and ask them if you're good and get like a good, figure out what you need to grow at uh, and which skills job postings might have, whatever. Um, and then just work towards that. It's just hard work and experience. So the last and last question is almost like an opportunity also for listeners who have uh, listened to the end and want to find, uh, maybe they want to get in touch with you. You said there are a lot of people who are very nice in the design community. So maybe there's someone who wants to write you an email or maybe read uh, your blog, like where, where can they find you? Yeah. So I'm on Twitter as not details, uh, N O T D E T A I L S. What's the backstory here? <laughs> uh, it's an Eames quote. So they have, um, they have a quote that says the details are not the details. They make the design. Okay. Um, so it's kind of counterintuitive, but not details means that the details are like the most important thing. <laughs> um, anyway, you can find me there. You can find me on joelkhalifa.com um, slash blog if you're interested in reading some of the stuff that I've written. Um, I've been sending out a weekly newsletter as well that's kind of has ended up being basically a, a fresh blog post every week, like a, an extra one. Um, that kind of ties into some of these uh, subjects. So for subverted design, I wrote the blog post. And then I had a lot of thoughts after that, that I, kind of I couldn't fit in in a way that made sense. And so I, I sent out an article about like different things we could do to actually get out um, of the current situation, which some of which I've talked about uh, today in the podcast, but other stuff uh, we didn't get time for. Um, so the newsletter is, has been fun to write. Um, that's it basically like Twitter and Twitter and my blog. That's where you can find me. Perfect. And I'll include the links in the show notes. Cool. Uh, thanks again for your time and for, uh, awesome discussion, Joel. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Okay. So this is the end of conversation with Joel. So as this is some kind of a prototype for me, I'd like to ask you, like if you have any comments or suggestions or anything, just drop me an email at alen at beyondusers.com. That's A-L-E-N at beyondusers.com. Also, if you do like the show, please like leave a review on iTunes because this helps rank the show higher on iTunes and it makes it easier for the other ones to find it. And again, if you do want to learn more about business, you can visit the beyondusers.com and take a five-day email course. And uh, in these emails, you can basically learn about five uh, business concepts that are relevant for designers. Thanks for your attention and see you next time.